Though Genesis 37 marked a shift, an important shift, a transition from Jacob, who we've been looking at for a few months, to Joseph as the central character of the Genesis record, chapter 38 documents a side story that's really unrelated to either man. Doesn't have anything to do with Jacob, has nothing to do with Joseph. As a matter of fact, the last time we saw Joseph, he's been sold by his brothers. He's in a Midianite tribe, the Ishmaelites, that are on the way to Egypt. He's been sold into the house of a man named Potiphar. The end of chapter 37 just, just kind of closes with Joseph in that location. And then there's like a timeout. Because while all of this is happening, while this affliction of Joseph is commencing, while the years turn into decades. At some point while Joseph is in Egypt, something occurs back in the land of promise. That's so important that an entire chapter is dedicated to it. Doesn't focus on Jacob, doesn't focus on Joseph. Instead, it focuses on another of the sons, a man by the name of Judah. Chapter 38, let's just dive in with verse one. It came to pass at that time, that Judah departed from his brothers and visited an Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Sua, and he married her and went into her. Though we aren't given any of the specifics, the very fact that the chapter opens with Judah departing from his brothers is revealing, it's telling. Keep in mind, it had been Judah, the fourth son of Jacob by Leah, who had proposed, who had introduced the idea of selling their youngest brother Joseph into slavery, a plan that everyone other than the oldest son, Reuben, went along with. Not only is it likely that his conscience is naturally struggling with the guilt of his actions, that he took a measure of ownership in what had befallen Joseph. But I can imagine the constant weeping and open grief of his father Jacob was more than a guilty conscience could bear. Not only was it nagging him, but his father weeping, putting on the sackcloth and the ash, and, 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 and just having this, this, this reaction to the, the loss of his son. As Judah's sitting there thinking, he's not dead, this is a ruse, but I can't say anything because that would implicate, my, implicate myself. There's this moment where he's like, I just, this is too much. I'm done. I'm out. As such, Judah bounces. We're told he goes to visit with his pal, Hira, who was, according to the text, an Adulamite. The city of Adullam was one of the royal cities of the Canaanites located in the hill country near the valley of Elah. Doesn't really matter to you. None of that computed because you can't visualize it. Other than to say that from Hebron, which is where they are, Judah travels about 50 miles northwest. He's getting away for sure. Sadly, though, and seeking to run away from his guilt, Judah compounds his mistakes. Not only was it fundamentally unwise, he depart from his brethren, but Judah has now surrounded himself with immoral influences. This man, Hira, we don't know anything of him, but it's safe to assume because he's a Canaanite that he was a pagan, an idolater. He and Judah had no business hanging out. 
They worshiped, they followed different gods. They shared a different worldview. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. <laughs> the problem is that Judah didn't have good morals anyway. So this just compounds a bad situation. And thus it doesn't take long for Judah's story to take another tragic turn. He sells his brother into slavery, can't handle the guilt, runs. Not only does he run, he surrounds himself with pagans that don't share his moral compass. And then what does he do? We're told that as he and Hira are palling around, hitting up the clubs, a Canaanite woman who was the daughter of Sua, as we'll learn, this woman catches his eye. They're dancing, jamming, having a few beers, and he looks over. Catches his eye. Wow. She's good looking. Anyway, he marries her. Intentionally defying a precedent. An important precedent for that family. A precedent that had been established long ago by Abraham. Not only had his grandfather Isaac and his father Jacob specifically gone back to marry within the family, the precedent set by Abraham, but Judah knew firsthand that marrying a Canaanite was detested by God. It was off limits. It was a no-no. He saw the results in the, lives of his, in the life of his uncle, Esau, who had done this and thus had, had broken and, and, and tarnished his ability to even receive the birthright. Judah knew that he should stay with his family. He knew he shouldn't have hung out with Hira. He knew he shouldn't have married a Canaanite, but he does all of this. Well, verse 3, she conceived, bore a son. And Judah called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. She called his name Onan. She conceived yet again, bore a son, and called his name Shelah. He was probably the, the wimpiest of the three. Judah, we're told, was at Chesbib when she bore Shelah. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. So a lot of things are happening. And her name was Tamar. Judah has not only committed a great sin by marrying this woman, but he proceeds to compound matters by having three sons by her. These half-Hebrew, half-Canaanite offspring, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Moses tells us that Judah ultimately settles in an area named Chezeb, creates a life for himself there. He roots, he settles. And understand, none of this was a snap decision made by Judah. Judah has chosen to completely reject his family, to reject his father, to create for himself a life apart from all of them. As such, he's taken a Canaanite bride. He started his own family with her. Because we quickly find Judah's firstborn is now of marrying age, we can assume approximately two decades have already transpired in just these few verses. Chronologically, it's likely that Joseph, on a side point, has already ascended to power in Egypt when this is all taking place, just to give you some context. The firstborn, Ur, is of marrying age. So Moses tells us Judah took a wife 
for him. We don't know anything about this woman. We know her name, Tamar. It's likely she's also a Canaanite, but Moses provides us zero biographical details. We can assume she's not a Hebrew. Moses would have probably let us know that, but we don't know anything about her ethnicity. We don't know who her father is. We don't know where or how she grew up. All we know for sure about this woman, Tamar, the only thing we know is that she was tall. And you might be thinking, how do we know that? Her name literally means palm tree. So she was probably skinny as a rail, tall, with big bushy hair. That's my assumption. anyway. But Ur, verse 7, and this is where our story gets interesting. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. <laughs> now, if, you, if you're reading through the story, just kind of on your own, let's say it's your morning devotion. This verse catches your attention, right? You're just tracking, okay, Judah's doing this. He moves to here. He has some kids, blah, 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 blah. Firstborn, he gets married. That's cool. He was wicked. That's a bummer. Lord kills him. What? Right? I mean, like verse 7 kind of demands a double take. Because Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, Moses tells us the Lord killed him. And the Hebrew, this word wicked would be better translated as evil. Once again, we're totally sparse on all details, specifics. But there was something about Ur's fundamental character that was off that was warped, that was twisted. That This man, while we're not told at all how or why or what, the text just affirms the dude was rotten to the core, a bad apple. This man was so evil that God not only prohibits him from reproducing, like, like we'll see, though he's married to Tamar, she's yet to conceive a child. Like this guy's so bad that God's kind of like, yeah, I'm not gonna let you duplicate yourself. Like, you're bad enough, little use. The world can't handle that. So not only does God, we, we assume, stop him from, from being able to, to replicate himself, reproduce himself, but the Lord, the Lord, Jehovah, the personal name of God. It's like God wants you to be clear. That, that, he, that he took a personal interest in what happens here. The Lord, Jehovah, kills him. We have no idea how it was that Ur died, except for that everyone seemingly recognized that God killed him. However he died, everyone was like, yeah, he was a bad guy. God killed him. Was it a lightning bolt? Like, like, like really, like, Whatever happened was supernatural enough that, that people just collectively was like, he got what, he was, what was coming to him. The Hebrew word killed, it, it literally means to have one executed or to put to death. Well, verse eight. So Judah says to Onan, the second son, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother pause just for a minute. 
What's happening here is an ancient custom known as the Leverite marriage. Because it was important that every male possess an heir for the continuance of a family's legacy. If a man were to die before his wife had conceived, it was then, culturally speaking, the obligation of his younger brother to sleep with the widow so that his brother could have a legacy that would continue on in perpetuity. With this in mind, because Ur has passed away, before Tamar has conceived, it was now the honorable and right thing for his brother Onan to impregnate Tamar, thereby providing his older brother Ur with an heir. This was such an important practice on a side note that it would be codified in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 25. What's happening here is it's, it's, it's cultural custom, but it was important enough even for God that this was something that God would state was necessary. It was a good thing. So what's happening right here isn't bad. However, Onan, verse 9, and I'm not making any of this up. I'm just reading the text. Okay. If you get upset, get upset with Jesus, not me. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, the Lord killed him also. You can't make it up. Now, before we look at the particulars of what Onan did, let's, let's examine his motivation. We're told that his actions were driven by the knowledge of what? That the heir would not be his. Because Ur was the firstborn son of Judah, he possessed what? An exclusive claim to the birthright. Since his unexpected passing meant that Ur could not formally receive his claim, Onan rightly understood that if he were to provide Tamar a son... For Ur, that child would be Judah's heir and not him. Understand, Onan is second in line. So it's, it's likely he's intentionally desiring or wanting to leave Tamar childless. Why? So that he would be first in line for the will. Like, why am I going to produce an heir ahead of me? when I could be the heir if Tamar just doesn't have a child. Not only does this mean that his motivation for his action is totally selfish, selfish, but it reveals to us a great disdain that Onan has, not just for his brother, but a contempt for Judah and the, the birthright. He doesn't respect any of this. So, with that motivation in mind, Let's look at his actions. Moses tells us, it came to pass when Onan went into Tamar that he emitted on the ground. For starters, it's important you understand this was not, according to the tense of the text, a one-off occurrence. This was not something he did once. In the Hebrew, the tense indicates this was something that he did repeatedly over and over and over again. You see, every time Tamar is ovulating, she'd come to Onan. 
he would have sex with her only to, right before that happens, to pull out and emit on the ground. The word we have translated as emit, emitted. And if you don't know what that means, just talk to me later. Or talk to your mother later. I'm doing my best, Joe. I'm doing my best. The word emitted, it means to destroy or spoil. That's what it means. Aside from the, te- the fact that Onan is intentionally using his brother's widow to pleasure himself, this act of emitting on the ground, culturally, this was kind of his way of giving his father and his brother and Tamar the middle finger. And to make matters worse, he did this over and over and over and over again. Like there should be no surprise that what Onan was doing displeased the Lord. Beyond the obvious, the way this man was abusing this innocent woman caused the Lord to literally tremble or quiver with indignation. It this displeased the Lord. It made him hot under the collar. Onan's actions were so grievous that the Lord killed him also. It's the same word that was used to describe what befell Ur. Now before we move on with this story, because it goes from strange to stranger, from bizarre to more bizarre, if you can imagine. But there is an obvious truth conveyed in this passage that most pastors would be totally, that would, most pastors would totally avoid making. Because honestly, it is not exactly a seeker-friendly idea. Truth is the point I'm about to make is rather offensive to our secular mindset. What you walk away from this passage, the one thing absolutely understanding, you can't get around it, is that God actively killed two men because of their wickedness. Though the actions of God seem extreme, that's not a very like tickle the ear type, type idea. Hey, welcome to church. God kills wicked people. Thank you, Zach. I feel so encouraged and exhorted. Wow. Hey, what'd you learn in church today? God kills people. It's true. It's all over the Old Testament. Even the New Testament. What do you think happened to Jesus? But here's the point. Why God's actions were were extreme. The reality is that they were justified. Keep that in mind. They were justified. From the very beginning, God had made it clear to man what? The wages of sin is death. The truth is that it's only account of God's grace manifesting in an act of his continued mercy that any of us aren't immediately struck dead as a result of our sin. What should surprise you isn't that Ur and Onan get struck and killed by the Lord. What should surprise you is that you haven't been yet. Like that should surprise you. In the end, keep in mind, Ur and Onan simply received what is the destiny to befall every wicked man. 
death, judgment. If anything is offensive, it's not men who are committing such evil being opposed by God. To me, what is more offensive is the idea that evil men could actually be forgiven. That's, that's off. You see, instead of recoiling at the idea of a righteous God judging the wicked, you should be ever thankful that Jesus willingly allowed himself to be killed by God specifically to take your place. How amazing that what was reserved for your sin, death, Jesus willingly shouldered, took upon himself on the cross of Calvary. And beyond this glorious truth, please know, if you've rejected Jesus, are in the process of rejecting Jesus, if you find yourself in a state of rebellion, you need to know this. God's patience lasts only so long. Once again, not another like seeker-friendly idea, right? Your time may be running out. God's patience only lasts so long. Let me give you the most seeker-friendly thing I've got. There is a day, if you don't know Jesus, this is, this is what you're going to get this morning. There is a day in your future when the righteous God can no longer tolerate your rebellion. A day when your life on this earth will cease and you will stand before him in judgment. And while it is a day that you cannot plan for and a day you'll likely never see coming, I'll tell you this, it is a day that you don't have to face if you'll just accept Jesus and place your faith in him. That is the most seeker-friendly thing I got. Well, verse 11. So Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he die, also like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now while the law of the Levite still remained intact in place, and now it's the youngest of Ur's brother, Shelah, obligated to provide Tamar a son and thus Judah an heir. <laughs> Judah's a little worried, right? I mean, Tamar's worked her way through two of his three sons. It will become evident that Judah really doesn't have an intention of giving his youngest son, Shelah, to Tamar that he has no intention of the youngest ever getting involved or mixed up with this woman. But he can't come right out and say this because this law was cultural. To make a statement, to reveal his intentions, that would have been taboo. would have looked bad on him. Instead, Judah uses here Sheila's age as a reason to kind of kick the can down the road. Tamar is instructed to remain a widow, live in her father's house, till Sheila can come of proper age. Verse 12, it came to pass, the process of time, the daughter of Sua, Judah's wife, dies. And Judah was comforted and went up to the sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Judah is about 40 years old. When his son, this Canaanite bride, unexpectedly dies. Not only has Judah had the difficult task of burying two sons, 
which as a father, I mean, that's the one thing, like no father should ever have to bury a son. Sons bury fathers, not the other way around. But you can, you can imagine how, how, how painful this all has been for Judah. He loses two sons, and now his wife dies. Judah's world here has been rocked. His life has been filled with nothing but death. Judah, as the scene shifts, is mired in grief. He's depressed. You can rightfully imagine he's alone. He's filled with despair and a darkness. Days of mourning turn into weeks before transitioning into months. Finally, his good old pal Hira decides he's had enough, chooses to intervene. I can hear him coming to Judah and saying, bro, I know you've had a rough go of it, but enough's enough. The last few, few weeks, few months, man, it's been a lot, but hey, you're still a young man. You're only 40. It's time to get out to get back in the game. Let's have some fun. I hear there's a party going on in Timna this weekend. Let's do it, man. Some good bands, some good booze. It's going to be some ladies. We'll have fun. You need to get out of this darkness, man. Let's go. Weekend trip to Vegas. You know what I mean? Well, it was told Tamar, verse 13, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. This was a celebration thing. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given to him as wife. A few quick points to consider. First, while we don't know how much time has, has elapsed between the death of Onan and this particular scene, one thing has become evident to Tamar and her friends. Judah was not going to follow through with his promise. We're told that Sheila's grown up, and yet she's remained a widow in her father's house. Additionally, it would also appear that this particular plot was not conceived or hatched by Tamar alone. Since Judah is defying a cultural norm, Tamar's support structure, which likely included even her father, felt that Tamar had really no other choice but to now take matters into her own hands. Knowing Judah was going to Timnah to party with Hira, Tamar removes her widow's garments, covers herself with a veil. Then she dons the garments of a prostitute, placing herself, we're told, in an open place on the way. The plan is to catch the attention of an unexpected Judah as he's returning from the party. The bait has been placed and the trap set. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? <laughs> as, as was the plan, Tamar, probably sitting down. She's standing up, Judah would know. 
the tall one, right? So she's covered herself, she's donned an outfit, and what happens? She catches the attention of Judah. I can imagine it's probably a bit dark. Judah's a bit tipsy from partying. But it has been a while since Judah has enjoyed the affections of a woman. I'm sure part of the plan, Hira encouraged it, was to get himself laid on this weekend away. Now, not knowing the woman to be Tamar, believing she's a whore, a prostitute, a lady of the night, Judah, he approaches. And I love the exchange here because neither of them have any idea what they're doing. Not, not that I know how this works, but from what I've read, the exchange here, it's all goofy, right? I mean, look at it. Judah approaches Tamar, and he asks what the going rate was. Now, not really knowing how the lady of the night operated, Tamar replies with kind of a name-your-price proposition. Hey, what's the going rate? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. What do you got? <laughs> a prostitute telling me to name my own price. That's, that's a little odd. I'm sure Judah kind of sees that as a turn of good luck. So he proposes a, eh, I'll send a young goat from the flock. Will that work? For a night of fun? Well, Tamar's like, that seems suspect. Like, I don't know, like, if prostitutes operate on credit. You know? Because he's like, I don't have a goat with me. My billfold's in the hotel. So let us just do this thing. I'll send you payment later. And Tamar's like, ah, I don't know if that's going to work, right? So she asks for a deposit. Then Judas says, well, what pledge shall I give you? Like, what's good enough for a deposit? So she says, your signet and cord in your staff, which is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put back on the garments of her widowhood. As the negotiation reaches its conclusion, Judah has agreed to give Tamar, as a deposit, his unique signet and cord, as well as, as his staff. In those days, this would have been the equivalent of providing kind of your driver's license and a credit card. Right? If Judah reneges on the agreement, Tamar would be able to use these things to not only find Judah, but to publicly solicit what was owed to her. Judah, he agrees. He and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, not Boots. That fateful night, they danced the horizontal tango, falling asleep. But then, upon awaking the next morning, Judah realizes that the harlot has already arose and went. She's left, so he does the same. As it pertained to Tamar, she knows that she has conceived by Judah. So she wisely goes home, removes her disguise, puts back on the garments, her role of widow. Now what's important as we continue is that Tamar still possesses both Judah's signet and his staff. It appears she had no interest in the young goat. So Judah, verse 20, sent the young goat <coughs> by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So Hira asked the men of that place, saying, where's the harlot who was openly by the roadside? But they said, there's no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and says, I can't find her, man. 
Also, the men of that place said that there's no harlot in that, in that location. But Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent the young goat. You have not found her. So it came to pass, after three months, that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. What a nice guy. After a failed attempt to fulfill his obligation by paying the harlot a young goat, Judah wisely decides to just drop the matter. So she wasn't there, Hira? No, I looked for her. I had the goat. I was going to give her the goat to get your signet and your staff, but she's not there. So I started asking around. They're like, we've never seen a prostitute here. And I thought that was a little weird, but I can't find her. I don't know. What do you want me to do? Well, let's drop it. That's basically Judah's, Judah's approach. Which, which I can imagine that in his pride, like there's a sense of shame over what he's done. I mean, it's why he sends his buddy to go make payment to the prostitute versus going himself. Moses then tells us, though, that about three months after these events, the events of that evening, that Judah receives a surprising but encouraging bit of news. Tamar who's supposed to be faithfully waiting to be given to the youngest of his sons. Well, she has now started showing the early signs of pregnancy. Judah, <laughs> he has an out. Seeing Tamar's obvious harlotry as a perfect opportunity to rid his family of this particular burden and therefore spare his son, Shelah, the the responsibility of providing her an heir, Judah commands, self-righteously, for Tamar to be taken out of the home, to be brought out, to be burned, which, understand, would have been his right. But verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she says, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. Keep in mind, this phrase, she was brought out, it's, it's, it's not very kind. Like she was violently removed from the house. This is, it's an unsettling scene. The men of the town come to the home of Tamar's father. They arrest Tamar. They bring her out into the public square to face her shame and accusation and execution. Not only does Tamar refuse to mount any type of resistance, but to everyone's surprise, she does what's, what's odd. Would you like to know who else should be brought out for shame and execution? Would you like me to, to name the other guilty party? It does take two to dance. Well, in front of Judah, likely Sheila, and the mob that's gathered to watch her burn, the men are like, yeah, we want to know. Who is this guy? Let's get him. She's like, well, here you go. And she presents the signet and staff as a way of ascertaining the identity of her baby's daddy. Can you imagine <coughs> the sick, sinking feeling that Judah experiences as he looks and she's got his driver's license and credit card and he immediately puts it all together? Uh oh 
Like that, that's a twist. And we're told, verse 26, that Judah, he acknowledged them and said, she's been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. Now, while Judah has been caught red-handed, to his credit, <laughs> we've been bagging on the boy a bit, but he does acknowledge the fact that both the signet, the cord, they're his. Not only does Judah admit that he's unknowingly had sexual relations with his daughter-in-law, but really in a moment of what we can only call humility, Judah accepts total responsibility, doesn't he? He even goes so far as to publicly concede that Tamar has been more righteous than he. In front of all, Judah confesses that he really had no intention of honoring his promise to give to her Sheila. Tamar's behavior had been one of desperation, and, in, and to a degree, it had been noble. Her actions had proven a loyalty to honor his son Ur. What Tamar did was an act of desperation to provide an heir. She wasn't trying to get lucky. She was honoring something that was important. The birthright. It was important. Tamar cherished the legacy of Judah even more than Judah cherished it. This phrase, that Judah never knew her again, indicates that Judah honored the fact that Tamar's son would be Ur's. That, that, that Judah honors the fact that therefore that child would be the recipient of his birthright. It was important that Judah not marry Tamar. It was important that they not have additional children. See, while Judah would care for Tamar and her children, it was important that this son be the heir of Ur and not another one of his kids. Why? Because it ensured then that Sheila could never make a claim to the birthright. Well, it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. So it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand. <laughs> and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it happened that then he drew his hand back. And his brother came out unexpectedly. And she says, speaking of the midwife, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, that's a pretty bizarre way to end a rather bizarre chapter, correct? We're told that Tamar was actually pregnant with twin sons. It runs in the family. Then upon delivery, Zerah, this boy, puts his hand out of the womb. It's a weird way to come out. Which is why the midwife takes a scarlet thread, bounds it on his hand. They're twins, and she does this so that they can identify which one is actually the firstborn after delivery. She marks him. However, to the surprise of the midwife, Zerah, after this cord has been put on his hand, this all sounds painful. He's like, no, not ready. Comes back in. To which his brother's like, yo, free pass. Shoop. He comes sliding out. Meaning Perez, not Zara, 
is actually the firstborn and the rightful heir. You're tracking with me? I told you, this was all weird, and no church in their right mind would just voluntarily pick this passage. But you have to ask yourself, why in the world would Moses go out of his way to include that strange detail? Now, I don't think Moses really knew why. You can make the argument that he tells this particular story because the descendants of Judah needed to know about their family, right? Their unique history. And yet I think that the ultimate reason Genesis 38 is included in the Bible, why it's in your book and why we're looking at it. Moses probably even died not knowing that the reason this chapter is in your Bible, we really don't come to see or understand why for much, much later. Turn very quickly to Matthew chapter 1. Because in Matthew chapter 1, we find something, a detail, that's fascinating. Matthew opens, presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews. Thus, to be a king, a rightful king, you would need what? As any king. A claim to the throne. A birthright. A family legacy. So, presenting Jesus as the king, Matthew introduces by just letting us know that Jesus has the pedigree to be the rightful king and heir of King David. So there's a genealogy that opens this particular gospel. We read, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we're going to get a long list of names. We're not going to read them all. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and then it goes on. Matthew gives us the rest of the genealogy, working its way down to Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, which is why it substantiates his claim to be our king and therefore our savior. But don't miss this significant detail, the significance of this point. Perez, Judah's son by Tamar, ends up actually being a part of the messianic lineage of Jesus Christ. If not for this crazy, whacked out, dysfunctional story, Jesus would have never been born. Perez is part of the messianic heritage, which tells me two shocking things. First, if God was still able to work through all of this, this, this dysfunction to bring about his will, God can work through whatever set of crazy circumstances you might be presently facing. If God can work through this, don't you think he's big enough to work through whatever it is you're facing? But Zach, you don't know what I'm facing. <laughs> It doesn't compare to that. Did you make the mistake of sleeping with your daughter-in-law because you thought she was a whore? No. Well, Judah tops you. Right? But if God can work through this, work his will through this, 
He can work his will through whatever craziness you're facing. And friend, I know that there's a lot of you facing crazy. Crazy family, crazy brothers, crazy wives, crazy culture. God can work through the crazies in the crazy. I find that encouraging. No matter how dysfunctional, no matter how out of control your situations might be, it is not out of control for God to accomplish his will in and through your life. The second point that we should carry from this story, if God would include these people in Jesus' family, <laughs> uh, he will include anyone. If you're sitting there thinking, I'm not worthy to be part of Jesus' family, Zach, what I've done is just too much. Once again, look at this story. Jesus chose these people to be part of his family. And if he would choose them, he can choose you. If you need further evidence, just look at the, the 12 apostles. The apostles, not even the B apostles. They were the first team. And they're all idiots. Morons, seriously. You've got deniers and betrayers and doubters and skeptics. Jesus is in his, is in his greatest time of need. They all run. Peter pulls out a dagger. Can't even hit the dude in the head. Misses. Clips an ear. Jesus has to clean up that mess too by saving the world. If those are the people, you see, it's not about you. It's about what he can do through you. See, the work isn't you. It's him through you. It's not the vessel that matters. It's what you fill the vessel with. What, was, what redeemed this family? Jesus was born through them and in them. What grace, what grace that such a story even exists in the lineage of Christ. This morning, while you may know that Jesus died for your sins, maybe you've yet to approach him and accept this gift of salvation, believing whatever it is you've done or whatever you're pres presently doing is beyond the pale, but know this, the story of Judah and Tamar fundamentally challenges that assumption. Let me close with a very quick story I believe addresses the sentiment some of us face. You don't have to turn there. But in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, we read that a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. This leper, his life had been ripped off. He was a shell of himself. He was a mess. Death was his sentence. Death was his future. And he comes to Jesus and is a last resort, his only hope. I got nothing else to lose. 
I'm dead to my family. I'm dead to my culture. I'm dead to my society. I'm dead to everyone. I, they literally called lepers in that culture dead men walking. They had to ring a bell. People scattered. And yet this man comes and he falls in front of Jesus. And what does he ask Jesus? It blows my mind. It's not Jesus. If you can heal me of my leprosy, let's do this. The man doesn't doubt Jesus' ability. He doesn't doubt Jesus' his, his, his enablement. He doesn't doubt anything about Jesus. The one question he has is the question some of you have. I don't know if you're willing. Because I've made a mess of things, man. Look at me. One of the greatest things that keeps people from Jesus is we don't know if he's willing. I know you're able I know you can, but I don't know if you want to. And look at what Jesus says. Before he says anything, he saw the man and he was moved. Compassion. We talk about the I am statements of God, things that, that define Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door, on and on and on. Uh, this is my favorite I am statement because he looks down at that leper and what does he say? I am willing. There is nothing you can do to separate you from the love of God. There is no sin you can commit that Jesus and his work on the cross isn't big enough to redeem you from. No matter what you've done, are doing, or we're planning to do this afternoon, Jesus loves you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to save you and then work through you in incredible ways that will blow your mind. If you think I don't know if Jesus is willing. Look at this story. He was willing to work through that. And then look at the leper. He was willing to transform him in a moment. So Father, with that word, we just want to allow that.